As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me today a very special, important guest. This is Brian Francis. He is a dear friend now. He's an artist. He's a First Nations advocate. He is a language preserver. The name of his tribe, the Elsibogtog First Nation in New Brunswick of Canada. He's also a filmmaker. He brings uh, native music recording artists out into the light. He is really one of my wisdom keepers in my life. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Elena. Yes. Yes, it's a real it's a real honor. We were inspired to do this by the time that we spent doing a guest expert spot. Uh, for my mentorship. And suddenly we realized that we wanted to have a longer conversation than what was allowed in 20 minutes. Mm. Um, today, I want to talk a little bit first about the proper way to open a conversation like this, where we're really welcoming in perhaps very new information first for some listener of mine who might be listening. And I want to treat it the way that it should be treated. So can you welcome in all of our relations in the right way and kind of get us started, please. I'd be happy to. Because uh, Mi'kmaq is my uh, first language, I will um, probably do an acknowledgement in the language and uh, invite the, the ancestors to come and bring us good words and good thoughts and uh, for this to be a good session. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Nogma, all my relations. I'm Nogma, in our language, really um, acknowledges all of my ancestors, all of our ancestors who have existed in the past to make us who we are today. 
because that's what we are. We are the creation of ever since time, I guess, that mm. uh, how we exist who, as who we are today. Mm. Thank you for that. It, ever since we spoke, it feels very important to take a pause before I do anything of note within myself even, mm -hmm. and just welcome in the intelligence of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. It feels completely true, highly natural, and really appreciated. I'm sure that my our listener is very grateful to hear the words that you've just spoken, even though we, we don't know the meaning of them. We can feel the energy behind them. I got tears in my eyes. It's basically um, opening our hearts and minds and allowing those ancestors to come because they are all around us. They are always waiting to be summoned. Mm. They are always waiting to help. And a big problem that we as humankind don't do is we don't, we don't rely on them in, enough. We don't call upon them enough. We basically just um, go about our lives trying to, uh, it's basically walking blindly. And when we do that, those messages those downloads, if you will, come to us. And I, I always say I know very little. Mm. But what I, what I do know comes from them. So the wisdom that they bring, that's where it comes from, from all our relations. Yes. Thank you for that. I'll start kind of sort of on the outside and then work our way in. Uh, mm -hmm. You've made several films, half-hour documentaries, more than 70 half-hour documentaries, along with two feature-length mm -hmm. uh, documentaries. Your production company is called Bear Paw New Media Productions. Yeah. Would you mind just walking us through a little bit of what sort of catalyzed your creations on film and then I want to walk towards the sort of more current events uh, that brought us together. Okay, I'll, I'll have to give you a, a brief background on where I'm located and what, what transpired to where I am today. Yes, please. Um, we're in probably the easternmost part of Canada, in New Brunswick. We are the the tribe that the um, the newcomers happened upon in in Canada. It was what we know as Canada today. It was in 1604 when uh, French traders and fishermen uh, arrived on our shores, and they established a very good working relationship with our people. So we've been in contact probably with the the new the new man um, longer than anybody else on Turtle Island, which is what we refer to as North America. Um, so we have, we've also had the most impact uh, on our culture, on our uh, on our language, on our ceremonies, our spirituality, and we are probably, as one elder referred to it, we're basically. Our culture is on death row because of so much um, attack, I would say. 
eventually it was it was um, caused by other nations, I guess, coming to this land and they and um, those other nations fighting, I guess, or going to war. Hmm. But we've we've basically survived. Our language has survived all this time, and 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 the lang- the words that I spoke when I first opened this was that language is at least ten thousand years old. And to imagine my ancestors speaking the same words that I just spoke is incredible. After after going through all that, so fast forward to maybe twenty years ago. There was a tremendous um, disconnect between our people and the uh, the non-indigenous communities, but there was a lot of curiosity. I would run into a lot of non-indigenous people who would say, "I would really like to uh, go see your people," but they weren't sure if our communities were open because about a hundred years ago, when Canada was evolving into what it is today, they formed. Um, they put our people in what they call Indian reservations. Uh, now they're referred to as uh, First Nation communities. I think it's a little bit uh, uh, kinder uh, name, I guess. But we've basically been living in these small uh, reservations, uh, very small land. Uh, I think we probably, and we don't own it, but we probably stay about 1% of the land mass that we we used to have. Um, wow. So my that gave me the idea when I trans- transferred into uh, television production. Why instead of bringing the non-indigenous community to to our community, why don't I bring the community to them? So I started um, featuring um, stories about our elders, about our ceremonies, about our language, about our artists, about our musicians, and I basically. Um, I did uh, six seasons of, of that just just uh, in a documentary format, which was really, really well received. People saw the beauty uh, of our culture. And, and I guess the it made a point that we 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 hadn't been killed off. We, we're, we're still here, we're still alive, we're still flourishing. Although we're having struggles right now, we're still here. And that we will, uh, it's going to take some time for us to recover and regroup and, and maintain that, uh, that resiliency that we've had all along. Right. And that's why I formed my uh, production company. And these documentaries that you made were to educate and inform and kind of inspire from historical truth, correct? Yes. It was basically to bridge that, uh, that disconnect, to, um, for people to maybe begin to understand that some of the, uh, the history that we've gone through is, is primarily responsible to uh, the state where our people are in. And, uh, I mean, our communities go through, uh, uh, we've gone through a number of social ills and uh, just trauma. And... Uh, but there are there are good stories. There are uh, positive stories within within that history. And when you have in the past, I've watched a couple of your films. When you have approached people of your nation and 
presented the opportunity to portray traditional ways of life. Have you ever come across any resistance from people or is it generally the resonance of let's make sure that we get this on film preserved? It's really, um, it's, I'm, I'm really proud to say that I would say 100% of the people that I've approached that I've thought um, are worthy to have their story told mm. have basically embraced the opportunity and are willing to, to give and share with the world, I would say, mm. the, their story. Right. And they're very proud and they're very, it's almost like they've been waiting for that light to shine on them so they can tell their story. And I'm sort of providing that light for them. More recently, um, and we'll definitely include in the notes under this episode, all the ways in which our listener can view your work on film. But more recently, it's come to light that so back in the 70s, 80s, is that correct? Or is this, no, 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 sorry, 1870s, 1880s, is that correct? Or is it later than that? Yes. Pardon, I'm still in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> 1870s and 1880s, we, we were discussing this recently, you and I, privately. Um, there was a spate of basically kidnappings of indigenous First Nations children under the auspices of uh, making them better. The church would come all over Canada, this happened, take the children and put them into what were known as residential schools. This happened right under everyone's nose and Many of these children were, first of all, quote-unquote, reformed. And many thousands of them were killed. And of these many thousands, a few thousand disappeared and their bodies were buried, abused, and then buried. Some underneath these residential schools in a very harsh way. This was just discovered in 2021 that these bones were found, these remains were found. And aside from the chilling aspects, which we'll discuss in a moment, perhaps the most chilling of all is that that entire generation, which was quote unquote reformed, became a lost generation. And not just that generation, but the generation to follow also became a lost generation because they had to follow in their parents' footsteps, being part of the quote-unquote church. And if they weren't, if they deigned to um, identify with their roots, their traditional First Nations roots and practices— this is the most chilling part. They felt as though they were going against their own people 
because their people had been so harshly reformed. And kind of in the most egregious fashion, this is yet again colonizing genocide, basically. I want to talk about this and I want to inform our listener about this because even though it was in the news for a day or two, right around Canada Day of 2021, and you can go searching and finding, this is one of the most important stories of our time to make sure that this story is told, that we know exactly what happened so that this kind of thing never happens again. I would love, Brian, to hear from you a little bit about your experience. Perhaps you can read us part of your post that you wrote that day that was so touching and informative and helpful, frankly, for so many of us. And I want to thank you in advance for having the courage to talk about this. Oh, thank you, uh, Elena. It's, uh, it is a very sensitive and very difficult topic. Uh, and it has, um, I've had the, uh, I guess the effects of such, uh, history impact my life and the life of my friends, neighbors, and community. The schools were primarily opened around, uh, 1870, uh, and they ran up until the 1990s. The last one closed in 1996. And, um, Basically, it was a government policy run by the church. And the process was um, government-funded and church-run. They were designed to remove indigenous children from their culture and assimilate them into mainstream society. There was one quote that um, was made by a politician that said, that they are to kill the Indian in their child. One of my elders um, mentioned to me a while back, he said, the mission was to destroy the culture of our people. And he said that the quickest way to do that, to kill a culture, was to kill the language. So when they removed these children from their communities, sometimes the parents wouldn't even know and they went into these schools, they were introduced to a language that was foreign to them. All they could speak at that time, all they knew was the Mi'kmaq language and other languages as, as you go further west, there's of course different languages, but I'm referring to the Mi'kmaq culture. And he said that's why they attacked it with such vigor. You Every time you opened your mouth, you would speak the language. And whenever you did that, you were beaten. Until you said nothing, until you could learn a few words here and there to try and, and, and speak English. So after a while, just the thought of you uttering a Mi'kmaq word would instill fear in you because you would be beaten. In a in hundred years, the, the schools were open. In Canada, there was over 150,000 children that went through the schools. 
By 1930, 30% of our children were in residential schools. And it is estimated that about approximately 3,000 to 6,000 children died in those schools. And what happened was that it really broke the, I guess, the prophecy or the philosophy of the circle of life that we practiced. And it disrupted the transmission of indigenous practices and beliefs across generations. So basically the circle of life was broken. And when our people left the school at maybe 16 years of age, they were basically empty. They did not know, they did not understand, they could not comprehend who they were when they went in those schools. And there was a lot of shame. They were basically strangers in their own communities. And they were also ostracized in the outside communities. They looked native, they looked indigenous, but they didn't fit in anywhere. And that's what, uh, that's what happens over a hundred years. And it is, it is genocide. It's, it's a sad term to use in, in our day and age. And you wouldn't think here in Canada or the United States that there would actually be a genocide committed against the people, the original people of the, of the continent, if you will. So that transpired into a number of um, problems, I would say. It created generations of social issues, social problems. In Canada, uh, some of our communities were known as suicide capitals of the country. We had the highest rate of suicide in our community, in, in, across, the, across the board. We had the highest number of alcohol and drug abuse that, that was recorded. I would blame, I guess, the, um, that history of attacking a people and people not knowing who they are, the lack of self-identity, the lack of self-esteem, the lack of pride of all the people that went through these schools. And only recently, like, like the children that went there, who are now adults and elders, they, they, they told these stories, but nobody believed them. Only now that the bodies of these children, the ones that went missing, are, are being found on the grounds of these residential schools, only now are they, are they um, people are opening their eyes. And they, they have no choice because the evidence is there. And as of yesterday, I think I checked, there was over 1,500 uh, bodies that have been found in the last three, three weeks, I think it is. And this is over the full uh, scope of the country? How many schools are we talking about? Can you give us an idea? There was approximately, uh, I think there were 160 schools um, across the country. But, and, and we only have 10 provinces. So you can imagine uh, some, of the, some of the larger provinces would have more, more schools, right. uh, more, more Native communities to, to, uh, 
to bring the children from. Hmm. And that's, um, that was basically the mission was to, um, to destroy the language, therefore destroying the culture, therefore not having to answer to land claims or, or right. compensation or any restitution or, or anything because we would have been assimilated into the, into the body of mainstream Canada. Now, I think the most chilling part of this is the fact that they took the children with the very deliberate intent of destroying the culture going forward in time. And this did happen in the States as well. It was very efficient. And across both of these countries, this entire North American continent, we have peoples far and wide who are basically struggling against their very own history to build self-esteem, to build solidarity, to build connectivity to the traditions and to preserve history against all odds. It is by far in my 50 years of life, this is, I think, in the top five most important conversations I've ever had. Um, I'm a little speechless at the moment thinking about 160 schools and these thousands of bodies found in just the last few weeks. And it's hard to talk. Um, now, keep in mind, our listener, this is 150 years later. Brian has relayed to me privately in other conversations that even as a child, and he's, you're my age roughly, right? Mm -hmm. A little a, older, but yeah. Okay, so as a child in the 70s, let's say, um, your caregivers, caretakers, parents, family, would even tell you that if you saw somebody in a suit coming across the landscape, that you were to immediately go inside. Is this remnants of that? And it is, and it is, um, at that time, we don't know why. And at that time, our community probably, which was the largest uh, indigenous community in, in Atlantic Canada, we probably had, I would say, maybe 1,800 people. But we lived, it was almost like a, we had our own little world. We, we existed in a small space. All I know is that we spoke our, uh, our language. I didn't know that the English language existed mm. um, because that's the language we were uh, raised in. And... Every once in a while, we would see um, people come in and, and they would speak a different language. Right. We wouldn't understand. But I noticed afterwards that prior to the, uh, a visit, my mother would scrub uh, the house. It would be speak and span. And although we had torn carpets and plywoods uh, showing through the carpet, it would still be uh, clean. But that's all we, that's the, that's the world we lived in. And when we went outside to play, we, we were basically, we went outside at 
eight o'clock in the morning and we would come back eight o'clock at night and we'd spend all our time outside. Hmm. But before we left, that was the warning was that if you see somebody come in a, in a suit and tie, you come to the house right away. Don't talk to them. Don't, don't go near them. Just come to the house. Wow. Because they knew that's what, that's what an Indian agent looked like. And that's what their job was to comb the reserves and, and to, uh, bring children to the schools. Um, there were times when sometimes the, the children would be uh, sent home for the summer. And I remember this blue, blue bus that would come and it would have the name of the school. And we would almost, we would watch the bus arrive because people that we knew were on the bus that came from those schools. But we were so afraid that we wouldn't even go near. We would just see the bus drive by and, and, and we knew that they were home for a little bit. Mm. And then we would try to see them the next day or, but we would wait for the bus to leave. But that's, um, even some of our elders would, would threaten, um, as a form of discipline that if you don't behave, that you would be sent there. Wow. Which was, it's a sad thing for, it's almost like, being threatened that you're going to be sent to hell, basically. Right. Wow. Tell me, when your friends were on that bus in the 70s, I guess into the 80s a little bit, when you spoke to them and visited with them during their few weeks of summer at home, what was that like? They were very angry. They were very bitter. But they would never reveal why. They would never talk about it. They would never, um, but they were. But you can sense that there's bitterness and anger in them. Um, some some of uh, my friends, even to this day, who who remember, like they say, there's no amount of money that you can compensate me for what you've done to me. You know, wow. And these like lives were were destroyed. I feel like I just want to take a moment to to really uh, hold a little peace as we are all listening to this together for these children who are now elders who were, in fact, taken to these schools, reprogrammed, forever changed, destroyed. May there be peace for them. Are you close with anyone now who has been through that, Brian? Yes, and there's uh, many. Uh, the age group is very uh, broad. Mm. From from people that I know that are in their nineties to uh, people my age, wow. And there's uh, there's other facets like there's the people that didn't go to residential schools went to Indian day schools. That's the that's what the reserve uh, the schools on the reserve were called Indian day schools. And the only difference was that we got to go home at night. At night. Right. Yeah. Wow. But the abuse was there. 
and the abuse was physical, mental. The abuse was uh, physical, mental, sexual, everything across the board. Anything you can imagine happened in our lives. It's uh, it's um. When when I try to put it into context and try to understand why. I, I have to go back to when they first started and what the way of thinking was in the eyes of the government. And ultimately, it had to do with, I'm going to say the theft of the land of the indigenous people. How do you justify that? Well, in order for us to make, to, to grow as a country, we need to we need to have absolute control over the lands of the country and how do we do that we have to get rid of the people that own the land and that was the mission when they first started this so it's almost like a a plan that went into effect that couldn't be stopped and i don't think they realized that we would still be here in 100 years to to speak for the people that have that have passed on in the hands of this policy right so only now are are the, the politicians and, and governments are kind of they're kind of back backtracking and 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 trying to uh, absolve themselves from responsibility and you know, and there's, there's, you know, you, you can't because government is government and it just, it, it, it perpetuates and it, the responsibility is passed down. So, but how do you deal with it? How do you deal with such a sensitive, such a, such a traumatic uh, experience of people that, 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 w- that, that they went through mm. and the impact that it's caused in generations? What do you feel in your heart, personal heart, right now, this can change in a week? What do you feel would be some beginning of an appropriate response to this present day from the Canadian government? I, I've thought about this um, all my life because my father, was a, um, he really instilled the politics, the native politics and the native and and indigenous treaty rights that existed that were signed in the 1700s. It almost has to go back to what we and who we were back then in order for us to, to, to be able to grasp the power that we need, the authority that we need to, to take matters in our own hands and to have what I refer to as self-determination we have to look at our traditional and spiritual elders for answers because traditionally historically that's what we did we we received the answers from the elders who received their answers through uh, ancestors uh through ceremonies right but it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of psychological, heavy, deep, sensitive 
uh, trauma that we have to deal with. And I don't. I, I know it isn't going to happen overnight. It may not happen for for a long time, but the healing has to begin. And recently, there was a in the media. I think it was yesterday, where nine bodies from the Carlisle Indian Boarding School. I think that's in Pennsylvania, were brought home, and they were brought home in a very beautiful ceremony. It's one of the most beautiful ceremonies I've ever seen for a for a burial where they repatriated the bones of these children back home. And they were wrapped in buffalo um, ro uh, robes and beautiful star blankets. And they placed they were placed where they belong, back home. But it, it be, it, it's a beginning of a healing that our people need. And that the non-Indigenous community begins to understand and supports. I'll make sure that the a link to that piece about the Carlisle School is included here. Um, the remains of 10 children and young adults who died at a Pennsylvania boarding school for Native Americans more than a century ago were exhumed and returned to their families. This was the first off-reservation boarding school for Native American children, and it was built on the abandoned Carlisle with an I barracks, according to the National Museum of the American Indian and the U.S. Army War College. The college now occupies the site. Uh, the disinterment comes after the remains of at least 215 children were found buried near a residential school for Indigenous children in Canada. That is uh, clearly not an updated number. Um, at least 189 students were buried at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School Cemetery. The children and young adults were already known to be buried at the school, their deaths marked, and their student information cards. This is, this is a horrific discovery. The, these deceased, it goes on to say, are among more than 10,000 students spanning about 50 tribes who were brought from across the United States to the school until it closed in 1918. Nine of the children and young adults were from the Rosebud Sioux tribe in South Dakota. The tenth child, Sophia Titoff, was an Aleut girl from Alaska. Let's just say their names. Dennis Strikes First, Blue Tomahawk. Rose Longface, Little Hawk. Lucy Take the Tail, Pretty Eagle. Warren Painter, Bear Paints Dirt. Ernest knocks off White Thunder. Maud, Little Girl, Swift Bear. Alvin, a.k.a. Roaster, kills seven horses. One that kills seven horses. And finally, Friend, Hollow Horn Bear. And Dora, Herpipe, also known as Brave Bull. Um, I was... I'm, I'm so full of emotion right now. It's really hard for me. I, I have known in my body for a very long time that I have some sort of connection here, and I don't know what it is. It's personal. It's, um, it's from a long, long time ago. And I know that it's true because every time I come in contact with any of this information, it decks me for days. And what I would love to 
to have you do, Brian, if you're open to it, is to read the post, the beautiful, thoughtful post that you wrote on the occasion of Canada Day this year, which I think will help to sort of tie all of this information up for the folks who are listening. Um, and I would also like to point out that the article from which I was just reading um, is a, a U.S. news outlet where they do speak about uh, what actually happened. Students were forced to cut their hair, change their names, stop speaking their native languages, convert to Christianity, and endure harsh discipline, quote-unquote, let's call it discipline now, shall we, including corporal punishment and solitary confinement. This approach was ultimately used by hundreds of other Native American boarding schools. They aim to commemorate this site with a museum. I just don't in 2000, apparently, the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs apologized for the ethnic cleansing and cultural annihilation conducted by the agency, specifically cited government boarding schools as part of a cultural assault on American Indians and Alaska natives. Um, the 2010 Defense Act included a clause where Congress apologized on behalf of the people of the U.S. to all Native peoples for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect. This is so paltry. Though Native people at the time noted that President Barack Obama did not draw attention to it or officially apologize himself, which is also horrific. I, I want to hear what you wrote because I do feel like it's important to to hear it from you mm. as, as part of this lineage. And I think it will help to, like I said, uh, help our listener understand the depth and the breadth of what happened here. Yes, uh, before I do that, I, 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 like, I would just like to uh, bring a point to uh, the beautiful names that you mentioned. Please. As, as, a, as a Mi'kmaq person. Um, just, just for me to announce my name as Brian Francis is, is in a way, um, uh, I guess minimizing or insulting my ancestors, ancestors, because that is not my name. That was not, that's the Christian name that was given to my family. Oh gosh, of course. And there's no record of what my great, great grandfather's name might've been. They just issued names based on uh, on uh, church uh, saints and, and and icons and and it's it's really um, it ties into what I had written because there is there is a process that I have to go through even just saying my name and I went to a ceremony about about 20 years ago, and I was given a name by an elder, which I'm, I use in ceremony, and, I, and I'm very proud of it. And, I, and when I pray, I use that. And my spirit name is Wabeg Muin, which is in my language, and it translates to white bear. Oh, I knew it was going to be a bear. It's so beautiful. It's so fitting. So on Canada Day this year, there was uh, because of what's what happened. Uh, there was, uh, I guess, uh, an effort made to honor and recognize 
something that they couldn't prevent. I mean, it was out there and, and people had to deal with it. And so they, they, a lot of communities decided that they were going to, uh, tone down, I guess the, um, the celebrations of, of Canada day on behalf of what happened. Right. And each Canada day, I, I normally, uh, extend, a, a um, I don't know if it's a congratulations or our best wishes for have, to have a good candidate today. But uh, this year I, I wrote something different. So this is what I wrote. During normal times, I would sit at my desk and write a little note to wish my non-Indigenous friends a happy Canada Day. I often struggle with this holiday because of who I am as a Mi'kmaq person. Growing up, I've always been taught to be proud of who I was as a Mi'kmaq, and I always have been. For a long time, I did not know who I was because I grew up around the time of the great cultural renaissance, if you will. It was when the introduction or the reintroduction of our cultural and spiritual ways happened. For many of us, it was the time we learned of the ceremonies. We learned about the meanings of the pipe, the eagle feather, the sweat lodge, the sacred teachings. This was only about 25 to 30 years ago. Prior to that, we struggled to be good Christians. Our parents taught us what had been ingrained into them about heaven and hell, singing the praises of the church and about our duty to God. I think we struggled because it was so foreign to a lot of us. But for many of our ancestors, they truly believed that it was our salvation. So in this day and age, when we even think about turning our backs to the church, it feels like we are turning our backs to our ancestors. Growing up being Indian came with its own stigma. Just dealing with someone at a ca as a cashier, a waitress, dealing with authority, such as being stopped for a traffic violation, or any interaction we, we may have outside our community causes us to have to get through a process. Will it be a positive interaction? A negative interaction? It is a process. Going to meetings, being invited to speak somewhere, attending a sporting event. Everything we do as Indigenous requires us to process who we are, where we live, and what we've experienced, what our ancestors have endured. A common one is having to stand for the national anthem. I've always, always struggled with this, but I do stand. Partly out of fear to cause an altercation with some patriotic person who, who may have gone to war for our freedom or just getting arrested. But on the other hand, I stand because of respect. Respect I have for my non-Indigenous friends and neighbors because I would want them to respect my ways if they did come to our communities, our ceremonies. I would expect them to wash the sage or the sweet grass to cleanse and purify when we begin our practice. Today we recognize Canada Day in a more somber, reflective, somewhat sad way. With the recent discovery of mass graves of Indigenous children on the grounds of residential schools, most Canadian towns and cities have been asked to refrain from the usual celebrations and to reflect on and try to learn about the indigenous people of this beautiful country called Canada. You've been asked to refrain from parades, cake, 
and fireworks. It may be tough to go through, and it is a sacrifice, I'm sure. But try to put yourself in the little shoes of the six-year-old boy who was kicked down the stairs to his death by a priest, the eight-year-old girl who was beaten to death with a two-by-four by a nun, the nine-year-old girl who was sodomized repeatedly by a priest who later killed her and threw her in one of the graves. Try to understand the generations of our ancestors who were stripped of their songs, their language, their prayers, and their spirituality. We will never get that back. But tomorrow, you can return to the normalcy and beauty of being Canadian. If it is too difficult to refrain from all the great things of being Canadian, and if it's too difficult to hear the tragic, traumatic, multi-generational impact of the Indian residential schools and the dark chapter of Canadian history, then by all means, proceed. Because we would not want to give you another reason to hate us. Of course not. Please be patient with us. I share this with you because of the thousands of children that have been discovered and would want you to know. If we do not learn from this, then they died for nothing. They are our ancestors now, and they will listen to our prayers for strength to proceed. I'm Sidnogama, all my relations. Thank you for that. I, uh, I don't know what to say other than what I've said to you a few times before, which is I'm so sorry that this happened. I'm so thankful for your heart on all of these matters. And I know that our listener is also thankful for the learnings gained here and the understandings for your really deft explanation of what it must be like inside of your heart and body at this time. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. Yeah. Very much. My hope is that this will go farther than we can possibly imagine and that at some point this will be part of some body of understanding that gets passed on to someone in a position to do something about it to offer some kind of reparations, I don't know of what nature, to these people, these families who have been stripped of their traditional lineage as a result of these practices. And I think that's prob- partly why I, uh, I share. Hmm. I feel somewhat... Uh, I don't know. I I, it, I feel like like why is it me that shares this? Because I didn't suffer like they did. I didn't go through what they did. I get to enjoy uh, living life in a very good way in this day and age. But who will speak for them? And like you say, it may reach somebody who may be in a position of influence who may begin to understand that there was a wrong, a terrible wrong committed to a people and that something needs to be done and that our people need uh, help. And, and, and I think I, want, I would want for them to at least understand 
I, I don't want them to be shamed or, or be guilty. I would just like for them to understand that there's a reason why. You know, it dawns on me that this could be the beginning of a conversation of earmarking funds that were dedicated towards war making, toward the healing, both emotionally, physically, mentally, of these peoples across both Canada and the America, mm-hmm. and, the, and the United States of America, to start to offer appropriate social services, recovery services without charge. Like these are the, the results of these practices are very serious social ills. What if we were to design programs that would be free for the people to engage with and heal with? That's the beginning of an idea. It is, and it, it is a very good idea. Yeah. To be continued, I would love to, I'm also going to include a project that I work on ongoing, raising money for the Navajo Water Project, which is a project that provides running water to homes near here, actually, in the southwest of the United States for the Navajo peoples where there's no running water in the homes. I'm attempting to raise $9,000 and we've got like 2,700 now raised. Uh, Yeah. So that's, that's something I'm working on my own personal life. Um, Brian, you also have artwork. I've actually bought one of your paintings. I can't wait to have it in my hands. I have a, a printout of it that sits on my desk in a, in a spot on my altar. Can you speak a little bit about your artwork, what it means to you, and where we can view it, please? I think my artwork is really, um, I really don't know where the inspiration comes from, but it, it is, it comes from spirit. Much like the writings um, that I write, uh, it, it, it just happens. And I, and, I, and I sit down and I paint I don't know what I'm going to paint, but these pieces of art come up. <clears throat> and it's amazing the um, the response that I've received from a lot of people. I always believe that as an artist, art is a very spiritual thing. And that it relates to that term, Amsidnogama, all my relations. That the DNA that's in my body is, is what created that piece of art. And so that goes into my artwork. And I believe that when somebody looks at it and, it's, and they are moved by that, then it's, it's their ancestors that are moved by that piece of art. And it is very spiritual hmm. because that's what spirit is. Right. Wow. Wow. The piece that I bought, just for our listeners so you can picture it, such a beautiful piece. It's on a background of sort of a rosy clay pink. And it's the figure of the back of three native women 
wrapped in fabric and blankets. It is so potent to me. And the moment I saw it, I knew that I wanted to have it near me to remind me of the importance of staying connected to that, to that part of our, our history. And I don't want to let this elapse without saying that I am here on uh, Hikarillo Apache land. And I think to begin to honor the land on which we find ourselves, wherever you are right now, if you're in North America, it's very well worth your time to look up the original nations that were living on this land of which you are currently a steward temporarily and honor them. Honor them when you say where you're from. It feels really true and natural to me as well to do that. So thank you so much for being here, Brian. Thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate you and all that you have given to us today. Thank you. Elena, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to bring awareness to this really important issue that I'm just not, I'm not going to call it just a news story, but it is a serious issue that has transpired for over a hundred years and the impact that it has uh, caused to our people and to bring light to such an important and sensitive and, and traumatic event in the lives of people. I thank you very much. And I, and I, I really um, hope that the words that we've shared begin to foster a better understanding between the indigenous and the non-indigenous communities. Thank you very much. All the blessings, Brian. I'm so happy to know you, White Bear. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. 
If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.